We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. They drilled their way into a subterranean fault at a savings and loan. And so you want to know, uh, number one, uh, how can you do it without getting caught? I mean, can you do it at all? And how do you keep from getting caught? And you find out the, the kind of equipment that you need, the kind of reconnaissance that you'd have to perform, figuring out the security in the bank. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by best-selling author Meg Gardner, who co-wrote the new book, Heat 2, with legendary filmmaker Michael Mann. Michael Mann is my favorite film director, and he is known for his meticulous research methods. Meg and I discuss working with Michael Mann, and we discuss how that research informed the novel Heat 2, which is the sequel and prequel to the classic film Heat, with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. One other note, this is podcast number 100. We have hit 100 episodes. It's taken six years, but we're there. So thank you so much for all of you who have been listening over the years. I would not have got to 100 episodes without your support. So thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I had a great chat with Meg. And I think Heat 2 is a fantastic book and a really interesting follow-up to the original film. So I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did recording it. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Meg, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's so great to be here. It's great to have you on. So for the benefit of the listeners, can you talk to us a little bit about yourself and how you went from a lawyer to best-selling novelist? I had always wanted to write Law, the practice of law, gives you plenty of opportunities to do that, uh, to write briefs for the court, which are narratives, which are stories that you are obligated to present in the most compelling and persuasive way on behalf of your client. But I really wanted to write fiction. And eventually, after uh, having three kids switching to teaching at the University of California, I moved to London with my family. My husband took a, a job in the UK. And when we moved, I realized it was my chance to put up or shut up, as they say, and really try to write a novel. So I started to, started working on, on a crime novel. And then, of course, like most people who think they know what they're doing, I realized I didn't. I put that one away, <laughs> wrote another one, and eventually was uh, initially published in the UK, mm. which was a uh, great and wonderful day. My first novel, China Lake, was was first published in the, in England, and uh, then eventually published in the United States, and I have not looked back since then. Fantastic. 
What was it like trying to write that first novel? Because you sometimes hear stories of people who are still sort of, you know, they're fizzing that first novel around other things before they become a professional novelist. How did that work for you? Well, I presumed that, again, because I had been a teacher and a lawyer, that I would have no problem writing a great murder mystery or suspense novel. And I started writing something that had terrific characters and banter and uh, all kinds of great little scenes. And I was describing it to friends and said I was writing a murder mystery. And one of them nodded politely, said, that sounds lovely, but... um, have you noticed that nobody in your story actually dies? <laughs> so, so that was when I thought, okay, I need to I need to sharpen my skills here considerably and read and attend seminars and just figure out where the bar is and how high I have to jump to clear it. And just do that until I figure out a way to write something that was actually publishable. And so luckily I did. <laughs> And who were your sort of influences and inspiration as a writer? Gosh, as a young woman who was very interested in writing crime, I was influenced and inspired by Sue Grafton, who was also from my hometown in California, Santa Barbara. That's where she pseudonymously set all her novels. And reading A is for Alibi taught me that anything was possible, that this is what the crime genre is going toward. There's plenty of room. And I should not be afraid. I should just really go for it. Elmore Leonard, of course, who was a master of story, dialogue, everything. Yeah. Steve, my my influences are broad. Stephen King, <laughs> Tom Wolfe uh, is just a, a wonderful world to dive into and, and see how the masters do it, really. Yeah, Elmore Leonard in particular is really great. Bless him, yeah. <laughs> So your books obviously focus on investigations of crimes. So what sort of drew you to that topic? Obviously, you've been a lawyer, but what sort of drew you to that that topic? Was it being a lawyer or was it something else? I had been a huge reader mm. of crime fiction, suspense, thrillers since high school, really. It's the love of the high stakes in the story. If it's, if it's crime, it's a thriller. The stakes are generally life and death. I love uh, stories where the characters uh, have their lives thrown wildly out of balance. Chaos enters their world, some dire threat that they realize they must address. They can't just leave it to someone else. They have to uh, find their courage and conviction and ingenuity and set out on some unexpected quest, really, to try to first perhaps just restore the world to what it was. And then as the stakes escalate, realize they are facing life and death for themselves, possibly their family, their community, the world, whatever. And uh, there's a, you know, a story that has a great uh, sense of pace, pulse pounding excitement, that roller coaster ride of uh, twists and turns, uh, holding readers on the edge of their seats and leaving the, the heroes with their backs up against the wall, out of time, out of room to run, possibly running out of blood. Yeah. And finding some way to uh, to rise to the challenge against the greatest of odds. That thrilled me. And I thought, well, I love to read that. I'm going to have to learn to write that. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. It does make great, uh, great reading. I've always been a massive crime and obviously espionage fan. And uh, it's the stuff of great drama, those life and death stakes, you know, even if it is very ordinary stuff, just with those characters, you can kind of make it very exciting. So, yeah, no, it's a great genre to be in. Have you spent any time with police officers or federal agents whilst researching your books? Yes. Over the years, I have attended seminars that the FBI 
gives for writers mm-hmm. at their field office uh, in New York City, field division. Obviously, the FBI wants to have a strong and shiny public presence, and they welcomed writers in that they hope will understand the work of the Bureau and present it uh, accurately and positively. Mm-hmm. For my new novel, <laughs> Heat 2, I did more research than I have ever done for any novel. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas, and I had gone on a ride-along with uh, Austin police just on a normal morning patrol for Heat 2. We went out, I and my co-author, Michael Mann, went on a ride out with two LAPD sergeants late at night through some of the um, grittier streets of Los Angeles to get a real sense of what the setting and the milieu and the nightlife, so to speak, were like Yeah, yeah. for the, the literal setting of, of a great part of the book. So that was enlightening and extremely helpful. Yeah, I bet. I bet. That's fantastic. And um, just before we move on to Heat 2, uh, are you going to talk to us a little bit about your sort of process as a writer from initial idea to final draft? Because I find that sort of so fascinating. And in particular as well, like with your first novel, because I believe it has um, some, it took some inspiration from the Zodiac Killer. Is that right? I have, my, my process, if you can call it that, is uh, to throw ideas at the wall like spaghetti and see what sticks <laughs> And usually maybe 10% of of the pasta sticks and I work and knead it over and uh, test it out and see if it still sounds like a good idea 12 hours after I've thought of it, uh, if if it sticks with me. If other people gasp when I mention it, I think there might be something to it. And then (laughs) you just develop it. You You need strong, compelling characters who will lead the story. You need an absolute hook for the tale you're going to tell. And I outline, I try to figure out it's the beginning, the middle, the end. Uh, so, you know, the big turning points, make sure you really have taken it as far as you can. I find that helps me when I sit down to write so I don't meander and get lost. I'm not one of those people who can just wing it and find myself in a happy place at the end. My novel, Unsub, which is the first novel in a series about a young female police officer, Caitlin Hendricks, who eventually joins the FBI. It does have as uh, a kernel of the idea of the, of the origin of the story is the Zodiac Killer. And the entire series of, uh, of the NSUB series, all the, all the novels have a true crime basis, a spark for the, for the story. So I grew up in California during the, uh, during the era of the, when the Zodiac was on the loose, and the Zodiac is still on the loose. Uh, as as an unsub, an unknown subject, which is FBI speak for the unknown perpetrator, the bad guy that they are hunting. So uh, that scared me as a kid, and I was fascinated by it, and uh, used that as the kernel of the story for uh, a cold case that turns hot again in that novel. Yeah, I love the uh, David Fincher film Zodiac. It really, I feel, captures the atmosphere and sort of energy of that time. As somebody who sort of lived through that, how what do you feel about that film? I love that film. It's absolutely gripping and suspenseful, which is a was a great ask to take on that story when there was no resolution to mm. to the case. Often in so often, ninety five percent of the time in thrillers and mysteries, you know, we want to know who did it. We want 
to have the, the killer captured and brought to justice. And that has never happened in the Zodiac case. But the story, the showing the obsession, the dedication, the fear, the drive of the hunt for the killer was just masterfully done. Yeah, I think Zodiac's now, just think about it, is probably the American Jack the Ripper. It probably never will be solved unless they get a DNA break or something. Could be. Although I think mm. I think the Met knows who Jack the Ripper is, but they just you reckon? Said, yeah. <laughs> you think? Do you think it's something political that they can't say? <laughs> I've always liked the uh, was it the Queen's Doctor or whatever it is theory. But uh, <laughs> do you have any theories on who Jack the Ripper was? Not worth mentioning. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Corgis did it. <laughs> um, actually, with the Zodiac Killer, because um, with the films, it Arthur Lee Allen, I think the film kind of makes its thesis that he was the guilty man, but I believe he's been ruled out by DNA now. But uh, I don't know if you have any sort of interesting tidbits on the Zodiac Killer. I don't think he has necessarily been ruled out by DNA. Oh. There are a number of suspects, and it's uh, still quite amorphous and of course now the dna is uh, has been around for quite a while and uh, what they can get from it is questionable but uh, yeah i think you may be right that we will wonder for a long time if not forever mm, indeed indeed well let's have a, a a chat about heat 2 i suppose first of all can you give us an overview of what heat 2 is about because it's kind of a sequel and a prequel yeah heat 2 is uh, a story that takes place before and after the events of the classic crime movie Heat, 1995 film, uh, written and directed by Michael Mann, starring Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Val Kilmer, Natalie Portman, uh, among many others, about the conflict of cat and mouse between a master thief, a highline bank robber, played by Robert De Niro, named Neil McCauley, and the relentless, obsessed a robbery homicide detective, Vincent Hannett, played by Al Pacino, who pursues Macaulay and his crew, trying to take them down. It is epic, operatic, and yet gritty and uh, action-filled. It's about two protagonists on opposite sides of the law, hunter and hunter, really, predator and predator, mm. uh, who are, are going at it trying to obtain their objectives to either take a score or stop the score and it all collides in a massive downtown bank robbery in los angeles and the uh, deadly fallout from that mm. now heat two the novel starts on the day after that robbery after after the events of, of heat have finished yeah it's a standalone thriller it is a brand new story so you can have seen the movie, and uh, if you have, you will know who these people are. If you are totally fresh to the story, you can pick it up and launch straight into it. It's about people who take down scores on those who hunt them. And it features uh, Macaulay and his crew, both uh, before, not seven years before the uh, events of the movie, when they are taking scores in California, the Mexican border, and in Chicago, uh, living big lives, uh, be daring and doing a big bank tunnel job in Chicago. It features uh, Vincent Hanna, the cop, then a Chicago homicide detective, doing his work trying to stop a violent gang of home invaders. It switches forward to after the events of the movie and uh, shows what the last survivor of the crew, Chris Scherlis, who was played by Val Kilmer, what happens to him after he does manage to escape by the skin of his teeth from the Drenignet that has been laid for him in Los Angeles and how he 
makes it to South America and starts an entirely new criminal life. The narratives are intertwined before and after. It, it jumps back and forth. It's a big, wide scope novel that uh, takes in a lot of places and characters. And I hope readers will be delighted to hear that since it's written by Michael Mann and B, it has a number of big action set pieces. As, yeah. <laughs> as Michael is known for doing those brilliantly in all of his films. Uh, and it's a, it's a crime thriller. It's, it'll be out uh, in America August 9th and the UK August 18th. Excellent. How's the book being received so far? The reviews I've read have been gratifyingly stellar. That's the only thing I can, yeah. that's the only thing I can say. I've been uh, absolutely thrilled uh, by the way people have received it. The, you know, the trade publications have really loved it. So I'm absolutely delighted. Yeah, well, I was a huge fan of the original film. I think the book's fantastic. I'm really, really enjoying it. I've purposely stopped halfway through because I didn't want to accidentally give anything away for the ending subconsciously or something. So I paused myself, but I'm loving it. So okay. yeah, no, it's fantastic. Well, thank you. <laughs> Were you a big fan of the film before you got approached um, to collaborate on this book? I was a big fan of the film, huge fan of the film. I have been a huge fan of Michael Mann's work uh, since I was in high school. Uh, yeah. basically love everything he has done from the Jericho Mile to Miami Vice, Last of the Mohicans, uh, Manhunter, uh, Collateral. And he's just a master at not only making beautiful films, but pulling you into the film and then just holding you there by the throat, loving, hating, concerned for all the characters, desperate to find out what's going to happen and leaving you wrung out of it, extremely satisfied by the end. So I was uh, thrilled, uh, mm. surprised, knew it would be a challenge when uh, I was approached about whether I'd be interested in co-authoring the novel with him, but felt it would be a huge responsibility yeah. to take on the characters and the story of Heat, expanding it into a larger universe. But I have always wanted to write a heist novel, and when would I ever have an opportunity to write something greater than to to work on a heist novel with michael mann about the world of heat <laughs> to quote um badly neil mccauley go where the action takes you <laughs> precisely <laughs> can you talk to us about what it was like working with legendary filmmaker michael mann and how you both kind of came to collaborate on heat 2 it was amazing it was absolutely terrific our mutual literary agent approached me once the once michael had, was talking with him about writing a novel uh, Michael is an extraordinarily experienced and accomplished writer. Mm. All his previous work uh, has been in film and television. Yeah, and writing a novel is a different discipline. Uh, he's also an extreme. He, he has collaborated brilliantly with other writers for decades. So he was generously open and interested in collaborating with a, a novelist who has uh, has the experience writing. 100,000 words down on the page, as opposed to writing an equally evocative screenplay, which tends to be much more uh, spare and condensed in form. Yeah. So uh, he wanted to work with a, a crime novelist. He read my novel on set mm -hmm. and uh, wanted to talk to me about it. We spent hours on the phone going over what his vision was for the novel, whether I could mesh with that and helping realize the ambitions that he has for the story. 
And we decided that uh, we wanted to give it a shot. So from there on, it was was long phone calls. It was uh, working out an outline for the story. He It was his story. I mean, these are his characters. Mm. Uh, he had the general idea for the story. So we talked back and forth about how to put that into, turn that into scenes and narrative structure and make it gripping and propulsive and just sent outlines back and forth. Uh, and then just, I just started writing. I needed to show him how I would, whether, you know, I had to put up or shut up again, I had to send him something that turned this into, started turning it into the story, send him a few chapters. We were off and running at that point. Yeah. And we started working together when COVID was at its height. So unfortunately, we could not get together in the same room for a year, basically. We, we worked virtually by the phone, email, sometimes uh, talking when he was in Japan filming Tokyo Vice, the, the new series. Yeah, I'm, which is great. Uh, I'm in Austin, Texas. So it was uh, long, long conversations with a, a big time difference. But eventually we were able to get together. I'm picturing Al Pacino in The Insider, where he's sort of walking along the beach trying to get phone reception and ends up in the water, or uh, endless speakerphone <laughs> conversations that pop up in Michael Mann films. <laughs> it's helpful. <laughs> you could, as long as you've got a speakerphone, you could take notes at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm a big speakerphone user, much to my wife's uh, distaste. But, so I don't know if that's because of the films or, or what, but I think it's usually because I'm doing other things whilst on the phone, so I quite like a speakerphone, but there we go. <laughs> So you were working remotely and stuff. Um, did you guys get a chance to sort of meet up in person during this sort of process at all? Yes, finally. When we were ready to uh, revise the draft, I was able to get to Los Angeles and sitting down across the desk from him for a week and hashing it all out was uh, was really brilliant and rewarding, not just for me personally, but for the story, for the work, because everything is, is always in service of giving power to the story. But, you know, picture us like Neil McCauley and yeah, Vincent <laughs> Hannah in, in the coffee <laughs> shop on opposite sides of the table, <laughs> sussing each other out and figuring out where we're going to, how we're going to uh, turn up the, the volume on the, on the finale in the book. Love it. Love it. And um, out of interest, were you, was there any particular software you guys were using to collaborate or were you just sort of pen and paper? How, how do you guys work? Or is it a bit of both? <laughs> Microsoft Word, that's uh, <laughs> that's the standard for novel writing. And we knew that was what uh, the, every publisher is waiting for that Word document to to come in. So there's no point in writing it something else. Although I do have a, a stack of paper a foot high on my desk that's just scribbled, hand scribbled notes. So there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of that as well. Yeah, excellent. Well, I'll get, I'll, it's, it's an interesting picture having Michael Mann using Microsoft Word. I don't know. It just sounds... <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so um, commitment to authenticity is obviously a big uh, thing for Michael Mann. And you briefly mentioned your ride along earlier in LA. Was there anything else that you guys did together or did separately for your research process for this book? Yes, Michael is legendary for going really deep into research to to get that authenticity that resonates with viewers and any audience and the legend is accurate so we needed to know how you would uh, carry out a tunnel heist hmm. uh, so we got on the phone with a retired bank robber nice <laughs> talked to him for a couple of hours uh, he was generous and informative and it was an absolutely fascinating 
insight into how you'd get into a vault in the basement of a bank. So if anybody's interested, read the book, then hit me up. <laughs> and of course, Michael is uh, Michael has, has traveled the world uh, doing so much filming and research that if there were uh, settings where we were going to write a scene, like so there's a there's, there is a scene in the in the novel where it, the character climbs up the side of a giant ship, and I'm like, well, what I want I want to describe that accurately. Michael's like, ah, I'll send you some photos of me doing that. <laughs> so, <laughs> was that when they're making Miami Vice? He did that, <laughs> or possibly Black Hat, but uh, yeah, yeah. So, and he had been to so many of the the locations. Of part of the novel is set in Ciudad del Estate, Paraguay. Yeah which is right on the border with uh, Argentina and Brazil. And he had filmed uh, portions of Miami Vice there. So he had hundreds of videos and, and still photos that he could send me to make sure that I got a real sense of the, of the place as I was uh, putting it down on paper. Fantastic, fantastic. Out of interest, how on earth do you find retired uh, bank robbers and things to speak to? I find that fascinating. Where's he finding these people? <laughs> Michael is uh, from Chicago. That's where he grew up. And... He got to know uh, a number of people in the Chicago Police Department, a detective named Chuck Adamson, and of course, Dennis Farina, mm. who became an actor and both, they both became very good friends of his. And when you know cops, they know robbers and they can make the introduction. Excellent. I was watching Thief at the Prince Charles Cinema the other day because they've been showing some Michael Mann films. So I've seen Last of the Mohicans Heat. And I was watching Thief and there's the, the famous safe cracking scene at the beginning. And there's this section of the film where suddenly, um, I think it's James Belushi is testing the phone line frequency looking for the alarm. And it was making me think of the book. And I was suddenly realizing it's something like 20, is it 20 uh, megahertz is the frequency or something like that for the, yeah. the alarm. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh my goodness, now I know these things, you know? Right. <laughs> So, I mean, like, what are the complexities of breaking into safes and things like you consulted these robbers about? What kind of things do they have to kind of uh, think about and look for in the logistics? Because in this robbery, I think it takes place over a couple of days, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they, they drill their way into a subterranean vault at a savings and loan. And so you want to know, uh, number one, uh, how can you do it without getting caught? I mean, can you do it at all? And how do you keep from getting caught? And you find out the, the kind of equipment that you need, the kind of reconnaissance that you'd have to perform, figuring out the security in the bank, figuring out uh, how often do the police patrol the streets? Do they have alarms uh, on the vault? Do they only have it in the lobby? Our guards posted there. So we found out that one of the great thrills for a lot of people who are planning something like this is doing the recce and spotting a weak point in the defenses of their targets. Mm. That's a real thrill. It's managing the risk versus the reward and making sure you can get away. How many, how many switch out cars do you have? Do you have a driver circle on the block? Do you, uh, how are you obtaining these cars? Uh, have you stolen them off a used car sales lot? Have you uh, bought them from somebody and put on new license plates and uh, faked the registration so that if you're stopped, nothing will be flagged? So how do you make sure you get you get home and uh, can celebrate later on? So it was, it's a whole it's a whole thing. Yeah. So this, uh, in the book, there's a new, I'll call him an antagonist. Um, his name is Otis Wardell. And yes. um, he reminded me a bit of Wayne Grove from the original film. And I was wondering if you could just talk to us about the kind of creation of that character and his sort of thematic importance. 
well, he's bad. Yeah. Like Wayne Grove. <laughs> Wayne Grove is the uh, man in the film who is brought in at the last minute to join a armored car robbery with the main crew. And he's uh, erratic and violent and uh, not a great person to have on board. And he creates all kinds of trouble and then gets away and becomes a, sort of Michael describes him as a virus in the film, mm. uh, infecting everything that goes goes on. And in the novel, Otis Wardell runs a home invasion crew in Chicago. So he's not a Highland burglar. Who, he's not a cat burglar who sneaks in by stealth and nicks the jewelry and then gets out and goes to sip a martini. He wants to be in a house with the homeowners present because he gets uh, a psychological charge from taking control and uh, doing very brutal things to the people he finds at home. Mm. He's uh, he's an antagonist. He is ruthless. He is brutal. He thinks of himself as uh, he wants to be a crime mogul in a sense, and he's successful at what he does. Uh, and uh, he it's extremely important to the police and to uh, Vincent Hanna to stop him to to bring him in because. Uh, you know, the robberies are getting out of control. He's uh, brutal, not only brutalizing people, but uh, killing them now. And uh, it's it's just getting worse. So he was a compelling, a horribly compelling character to write. Mm. But there are people like this. And uh, it was uh, gruesomely fascinating to try to understand where he would have come from and uh, why he wants to do the things that he does and why he won't stop, which is why he is uh, he has an empty need inside of him that won't let him stop. Uh, he wants to keep trying more and bigger and more disgusting crimes. So it's, it's increasingly important that uh, Hannah and his team try to bring him down. Yeah. When watching um, Thief, and, I, and I've lost track of how many times I've watched that film now, but for some reason when I was in the cinema, I suddenly clocked that the book it's based on is called The Home Invaders. And I was trying to get a copy, but it's like 300 plus dollars at the moment. So I'm like, yeah, I do want to read it, but at the same time, I could do it $300. But um, is there any kind of connection to that character and, and that book in any way that you know of? No, I don't know, but uh, but Michael knew a uh, thief named John Santucci, who I believe the the story, the James Conn character, is drawn from. So, I mean, of course, Michael had everything he had read and learned from that that he could uh, that he could deploy, and he too as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Are you able to just talk to us a little bit about the inspiration behind the key characters of Vincent Hanna, Neil McCauley, Chris Shirelis, which I always have problems with that surname? And Nate, because Nate's such a mysterious figure as well. Uh, he was famously played by John Voight, wasn't he, in the film? Certainly. As I mentioned, uh, Michael uh, was friends with uh, Chuck Adamson, who was a Chicago detective. And he, as a young detective, was hunting a crew of Highline burglars and bank robbers in Chicago, led by a man actually named Neil McCauley. Yeah. And they came face to face on a Chicago street one day and looked at each other and uh Chuck Addison said that, you know, he thought, what do I do? Mm. Do I pull my gun? <laughs> do I uh, call this in? And Macaulay was looking at him the same way. And instead, they walked toward each other and said, how about we get a cup of coffee? Mm. And uh, so they did. They uh, had a wary rapport 
that developed from that, uh, despite knowing that each other would, uh, without any hesitation, blow the other one out of his socks. And eventually, Chuck Adamson did. He uh, caught Macaulay trying to get away from a, a violent robbery, and they had a gun battle. Mm. So that was the kernel. That story stayed with Michael as uh, opponents, antagonists, who nevertheless respected each other's job, in a sense, and skills, and did what they each thought that they wanted and needed to do. So those were characters that he used as the kernel for heat, as uh, twin protagonists, really, mm. the, the cop and the robber. Uh, Hannah, who is driven and relentless and sarcastic and brilliant, and Macaulay, who has learned to be uh, meticulous and uh, calculates risk versus reward down to a nanosecond uh, whenever he's planning a score and has adopted the credo that uh, if you are making moves on the street, have no attachments, have nothing in your life that you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. Hmm. So that becomes Neil McCauley. And uh, Chris Schaferlist, uh, played by Val Kilmer, is Neil's uh, surrogate brother, his brother-in-arms, young guy who is like kind of a jumping jack flash, wild uh, gambler, takes the Every kind of drug there is for fun. Uh, his ordinary life can be totally screwed up, but once he locks it down on the job, he is absolutely focused and perfect in what in what he does when he's doing crime. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't know exactly where that character came from, but I think that there was probably a there was a real life model for him as well. Mm. And Chris is a major character in the novel as uh, both before and after, as a very young man who still pops off. Uh, he can go off uh, very instantly and violently. Mm. And later on, uh, he's figuring out what's he, what else is he going to do with his life now that he's the last survivor of this crew and has escaped. And is he going to do the same thing or go in a different direction criminally? Mm, indeed, indeed. Is there anything you could share about Nate the Fixer? Because I've always found him such a fascinating character. Absolutely. Nate is a bit of an older guy. He, he looks like a rockabilly 70s biker, stringy blonde hair, wears bolo ties and, you know, terrible polyester jackets. <laughs> and he is uh, the, the fence. He, he sells, he, he makes a deal to get to, to offload the goods or money or jewels that have been stolen for Neil. And he takes care of, he, he helps uh, facilitate scores, you know, puts Neil in touch with people who uh, who know how to get into a bank or into a precious metals depository. And he is an ex-con that Neil knew him from prison, uh, from Folsom. And Michael spent a lot of time at Folsom Prison filming his first feature, The Jericho Mile, mm -hmm. and met and uh, talked at length with quite a number of the cons there. He said he, he realized his uh, vision of what prison life was at that time was totally inaccurate. That yes, these were these are violent felons. A lot of them have done really terrible things, heinous things that deserve to be there. But people who were put in for life at the time, they were gotten into educating themselves 
not with the idea that they would like like get a degree for a career once they were uh, released, but they realized uh, they needed to understand their lives and uh, the meaning of life. Is there one? Mm. And there were prison libraries and they would go and they would say, give me something about the meaning of time, about the meaning of life. I need to figure out what I do with my time here in the They'd you know, be directed to Camus mm. or some other philosophers, and they'd really study it, or Marx or Buddhism. So Nate uh, is not a philosopher, but he got his degree at Folsom at a time when prison education systems were up and running. So he has a degree in finance, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he knows how to make money work and move, and he is one of the people who's closest to Neil in the movie. Mm. And he is uh, in both the before and the after of the novel, trying to figure out how to help uh, facilitate various scores. The one in Chicago, another score that takes place on the in Mexico, and eventually put Chris in touch with the computer genius who features in Heat and in the book. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I was just thinking about Nate and, and Neil. I can understand why they're quite close in the sense of because um, they've got they're both quite similar. They have to kind of hold lots of things together. Like with Neil, it's the crew, um, and then with Nate, um, it's it's sort of the whole organization of what he does. Yeah, he he has a legitimate business. He runs a bar, mm. uh, and uh, but uh, he's uh, he knows the cops are always snipping around at him, and he's uh, he's a careful cat. Yeah, yeah. Have you out of interest? Have you met any of the cast of the of the film? Um, and chatted with them at all i have not i was fortunate last month to attend a retrospective uh screening of heat on the big screen at the tribeca film festival in new york city where uh robert de niro and al pacino spoke ahead of the screening they come on and the crowd goes wild they come on stage (laughs) and then they they chat and then they uh, they head back off. But uh, that was extremely, extremely fun and uh, enlightening and wonderful to see the film again in 4K Ultra on the giant screen. Oh, yeah. No, I bet that's brilliant. I bet that's brilliant. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add about Heat 2 before we wrap up? No, oh, I hope readers will love it. And mentioning the main characters in the, in the story who feature in both the movie and the novel, there are, uh, we've talked about Otis Wardell, who is new to the story, and there are a number of other characters, men and women, who are integral to the story, and it's uh, showing all their lives in crime and out, so who who embraces it, who wants to try to escape from its legacy, mm. and uh, it's a ride. It's a ride. I hope that uh, readers will, will grab it and love it. Excellent. When is Heat 2 out again? It is out August 9th in the United States and 18th of August in the UK. Brilliant. And what's sort of next for you? More books. More books. Excellent. <laughs> Are you, have you got anything in the works that you can share with us at the moment? Or I have a uh, next novel in my Unsub series. Yeah. Book coming out. And I am going to be working on another standalone thriller. And my main project at the moment has been <laughs> rebuilding my house. We had a we had a fire, unfortunately, last summer. Yeah. Just this week, are able to move back home. So that's been my baby for quite a while. I can understand that. But we're glad that that's wrapping up. Yeah. Well, glad it wasn't anything too serious in the end. But uh, yeah, but that's uh, been quite a job rebuilding your house there. Yeah. But we're home. That's all that counts. That's important. That's good. Thank you. Well, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? You can find me online at meggardiner.com, M E G G A R D I N E R.com. I am on Twitter at MegGardner1, one that's a numeral, uh, same with Instagram, and also on Facebook at uh, 
Meg Gardner Books. And you can find my novels uh, in fine bookstores uh, across the world. So uh, I'd be delighted if you take a look. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining me today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is Secrets and Spies.